This is the Chickadee Prince Books Podcast, a weekly program featuring dramatizations and conversation. This week, I have my ghosts. In a way, I am a ghost myself. The Ghosts of Watohue a radio drama adapted from the novels by Stephen S. Drachman, starring Anthony Tether and Emily Dalton, produced by Danielle Wu, with music by Derek K. Miller. Episode 2, New York. My name is Watto Hugh III. This is my story. When I returned to New York in the summer of 1874, as a minor western icon and the star of my own Wild West show at the Great Roman Hippodrome, I looked forward to a life of adding up zeros. But on July 17th, just a half hour into the show, I heard the sound of gunfire. I scaled the wall and up in the rafters, a gunshot shot buffeted me on my left and then one knocked me to my right. And I fell sideways, twisted about and reached for support, but my fingers swam uselessly in the empty air. I waited to fall. The one thing I knew was that I would not live through this. I stared death in the face, waited for it. Though the laws of physics, Newton's theory of gravitation to be precise, might mandate that I then die, I did not die. I fell perpendicular to the hippodrome wall, only so far before my downward momentum slowed and then stopped. And from out of the darkness as I hovered above the crowd, an invisible hand reached out to me, a little hand with tiny little fingers. I recognized the touch like an old friend, there in the small of my back, holding me aloft. Breathing more easily now, my heartbeat relaxing, I stared straight up into the vast, domed ceiling, painted reddish-orange by the sunset. Gently rose to my feet, my balance restored by the little hand, one that was so weak in life, but so strong and powerful in death. Thank you. I longed for a reply, but nothing. Silence. And then the touch left me. I bounded behind the curtain into the fly loft, where the scenery hung for our drama. Backdrops of rustic pioneer scenes, rickety western towns, sweeping vistas and dusty plains. My right hand lifted as though it belonged to a different man. My fingers wrapped tightly around my forty-five. I turned to the left, and a black-suited figure rose above the gridiron. A dark shadow against a brightly painted silver boulder in an Arizona desert backdrop. My peacemaker discharged, and a a gun flew out of his hand. Then I lurched to the right, and, and again I aimed without thinking at a darkly dressed figure, almost invisible, against the elaborate, half completed wood carvings that encircled the edges of the theater. I again shot blindly. Another gunman, 
demobilized, his right arm jerking sharply behind him. I looked forward at another expanse of dangling scenery. And I shot at a man leveling a shotgun from the steps of a frontier post office. And I spun around. And I shot again. And I didn't even know what I was shooting at. And then I just shot above me. Firearms flew out over the audience. In less than a minute, six gunmen gunless. Events moved dreamlike around me and through me, and as I hovered in the painted clouds, miles above solid ground, gaping, helpless. The gunmen scrambled over beams and scampered under planks. One swung from a pipe batten and slid down a rope that dangled at the edge of the curtain, escaping across the arena and up through the aisle. Another vanished into the dark shadows at the very top and furthest edge of the theater. To my left, I saw a flutter of movement, and as I turned, my gaze followed one figure who darted lithely along the length of the cornice. In an instant, I was on his tail and gaining ground, and a minute later, had cornered him against a gigantic stone column that rose from the floor all the way to the ceiling. You there! Stop! The gunman turned around, and he stretched out both hands behind him his skin taut over a thin and bony face, which was white and young and almost pretty, like like that of a girl, but his hair was streaked with gray. The killer's eyes were small and round, lips full and red as blood. The gunman's black robes fluttered around a long, wire, skinny frame. This was my first sight of Monsieur Rasha. I wish it had been my last. Who are you? The figure dived with exceptional grace from the column, drifted into the air for a moment as his robes rose around him like wings, and then plunging seemed to evaporate on the long fall to the ground. The show must go on. It was time for Emelina's sharpshooter routine. I hope I hadn't upstaged her. In her backstage dressing room, Emelina's eyes were bright, her cheeks rosy with excitement. How do you do that? I'm a good shot. Thanks for saving my life up there, by the way. That was nothing. Listen, I'm a good shot. You do things that are impossible. In Little Mount and today. Not impossible. Are you a mathematician? I've heard of a mathematician named Leopold Kronecker who's calculated a way to shoot a dozen men dead with a single bullet. I'm no mathematician. Explain this talent to me. I could use some of that in my act. You have a right to understand what happened in the Hippodrome rafters, but I can't explain it the way you want me to. Uh, because I don't truly understand it myself. It can't be taught. It isn't science. It isn't something I can replicate in the show to make money. It isn't about money. It's, it's about life and death. Emelina. What's the matter? Look, there's something I should tell you now. Tell me, if there's something I should know. Do you believe in ghosts? No, I don't believe in ghosts. Do you believe in angels? I do not. Don't you believe in heaven? <laughs> I used to believe in heaven. Any teenage girl living in a sod house in Kansas has to believe in heaven, but now? If angels and ghosts and God and heaven and hell exist, it has nothing to do with me. 
The people in that audience out there exist, and their dollars exist, and I always have to hope that my next meal exists. And you exist, what? And I exist. And so we exist. Then I don't even know where to begin. Begin at the beginning. Begin with the riots. You mutter about the riots almost daily, but you've never told me about them. And I've been afraid to ask. You'll think I'm crazy. When I said that about being crazy, all worry left Emelina's eyes. And she smiled easily. Leaning forward, she kissed me quickly and reassuringly on the mouth. Then she nibbled my lower lip with her teeth. I found myself distracted. I don't care if you're crazy, darling. Be as crazy as you want. Outside her dressing room, up in the hippodrome rafters, a dead man's body twisted in the ropes. A drop of blood dripped from his chest, hovered in the air and drifted away on the wind, breaking apart into nothing before hitting the ground. My boasts about my Wild West show may seem inflated or exaggerated. You've never heard of me. Though you know, even now, Buffalo Bill Cody and Annie Oakley, as though they were luminaries of your own age. Though in my opinion, I had the better show. More stirringly exciting and free as it was from the misconception of its age. My spectacle was short-lived. Our July 17th performance which might have been the last night of my entire life, turned out instead to be merely the end of a very brief but brilliant theatrical career. Stepping out of the theater, Emelina and I walked briskly across 4th Avenue, both of us dressed for the evening. I tidy enough in a newly bought suit, and Emelina luminous in a long, dark blue skirt, her brilliant and red hair cascading over her short, stylishly cut and embroidered suave jacket. Heading to the cavernous dining room at the Cafe Brunswick where, back in the 60s, Lucy used to treat me with her patron's money. I wondered how it would feel to pay for the evening myself. But then we reached the other side of the avenue, a horseman who stood beside an empty carriage called out my name. What oh Hugh? Mr. J.P. Morgan seeks your audience. Under the full moon, we stepped happily into the carriage, and the driver quickly shut the door. He was not yet J.P. Morgan, the invincible legend and myth. That would come some 20 years later. Still, he was a powerful fellow, with a close connection to President Grant, hundreds of tentacles wrapped around the major industries of the day, which, in addition to his minority ownership in my own Wild West show, included his burgeoning interest in the railroads and ostentatious displays of wealth that encompassed not only the imposing brownstone he'd recently acquired on the cushiest stretch of Madison Avenue, but also a rambling mansion in Highland Falls, where each summer he entertained the right sort of people and lit up the Hudson River with a private fireworks display. Morgan had money. I, too, wanted money. So I admired him. I wanted to meet him. A lamp lighter on 4th Avenue poked open one side of a square gas lamp. He turned on the jet and lit the flame. Behind him, the soft glow of gas lamps rose into the night and gently overwhelmed the stars. 
By the time we arrived at Morgan's mansion at 219 Madison Avenue, the evening had darkened and the city bloomed like a yellow flower. Morgan's mansion, like the houses surrounding it, was strong and solid and seemingly permanent. Elegantly dressed men in walking suits and women in bustles strolled arm in arm along the wide sidewalks. One couple pushed a baby buggy, giving their child a breath of fresh, early evening air, as four horses pulled an omnibus north of the avenue. I thought it would last forever, and that New York would always be a city of mansions. These people, this picture, seemed indestructible. We stepped down from the carriage and made our way up the front walk. I put my hand gently on her arm as we ushered into J.P. Morgan's parlor, a large room of dark wood, which boasted two suits of armor, a crystal chandelier, finely hand-carved pieces of dark oak furniture, and a sweeping array of gold and silver-bound books lining the walls, interrupted by medieval tapestries. Over the fireplace, a striking painting of a young woman, very beautiful but thin, sickly and fragile, whose eyes stared imploringly from the canvas. A man sat by the fireplace drinking port wine. Watto Hugh, I am Mr. Sneed. Sneed had short blonde hair, a ruddy face centered by a crooked, almost mangled nose. His fingers, clutching the edge of his armrests, were thick and calloused. I am a government agent. What government? City? State? Federal? Foreign? You know, Mr. Sneed, I recall now a possibly important detail of my recent life that I have absent-mindedly left unresolved, and which I think might be the reason I've come under government scrutiny. There is, I have to admit, a dead man hanging from the ropes and pulleys at the very top of the hippodrome ceiling. <laughs> I'd forgotten about him until now. With no excuse or warning, this anonymous assassin opened fire in a crowded theater. Someone should probably be told about this little altercation and its unfortunate but entirely necessary finale. Who better than a government agent? You could clean it up, investigate, issue a report, exonerate me. Do whatever is done in a case like this. Mr. Morgan, I already taken care of that. It was part of the show. He was an actor. He is celebrating this very minute, drinking and whoring away his evening's pay at Harry Hill's dance hall. That's the story. No one knows different. Who was he? The assassin's identity doesn't matter. Forget about him. He is no one. I am very late, but I thank you for coming. With a thud and a rumble, J. Pierpont Morgan himself suddenly burst into the room in a cloud of dense cigar smoke. A huge figure of a man with a thick, strong neck, a bushy and meticulously choreographed walrus mustache and fat knuckles. While a physically powerful man, he was also obviously dissipated, fat and sluggish, with a bulbous nose, veiny red and disfigured by eczema, acne, rosacea and gaping bloody pores a worm could have crawled through unnoticed. To me, he appeared at least 59 years of age, and I would have been shocked to learn that at that time, Pierpont Morgan had not yet passed a comparatively tender age of 37. Thank you for your invitation, Mr. Morgan. I have a very important task for you, Mr. O'Hugh. It's not in the realm of the theater, of course, which I have discovered is not your main forte. 
I paid for a spectacle depicting heroic white men battling savages, and I have neither the time for progressive ideas nor an intention of putting New York audiences at mortal peril by bankrolling a man who, I've learned too late, has long been a pariah on the East Coast. Now wait just a... Needless to say, I thank you in advance for your services. Mr. Sneed will explain everything. Without smiling, he carefully placed his hat onto his big hand and draped a long black summer top coat around himself. His stare for a moment lit on the painting over the fireplace. I do appreciate anything that you might be able to do to help me. You will be generously rewarded. It's a matter of great importance. That was J. Pierpont Morgan, who just came and went. I apologize for the lack of any proper introduction. Yeah, I made the connection. A big, fat, rich guy running around J.P. Morgan's mansion like he owns the place is probably J.P. Morgan. Thanks. We have to leave. He doesn't want us to spend too much time here. Mr. Morgan doesn't allow show people in his house. You understand. We retreated to a Fargo bank on an elegant side street a few blocks away. One of the relatively rare first-class gambling halls in Manhattan. The house itself looked as any other of the palatial brownstone mansions on the street, but for the blinds that were tightly closed and the silent carriages that patiently clustered nearby. Inside, the house seemed furnished for slightly perverted royalty, and with thick velvet carpets on the floors and beautifully rendered yet completely lascivious nudes framed on the wall. Colored servants ran about with trays loaded with caviar and other delicacies, and elegantly dressed men drinking champagne stood over the roulette and pharaoh tables, laughing and cursing and occasionally cheering with raised fists. Why have you brought us here? Gambling is illegal in New York. What's important isn't the law per se, but getting results. Do you understand what I mean? And this den of sin has the third best food in the city after Delmonico's and Cafe Brunswick, which I believe was your destination for the evening, so at least we owe you a good meal. No thank you. Nothing for me, thank you. It's your decision. Have you heard of Alan Jerome? Financier who's vanished at the end of the 60s? Brilliant, Harvard-educated mathematician but childless and infantile? Prone to petty tantrums? Until the age of 30, when he terminated his role in the New York business world, a woman had never been observed on his arm or rumored in his bed. In the mid-60s, he turned gold speculator. He got in just before the start of the bull market, and he saw his initial investment explode. His investors came from all over the map. They included President Grant's brother-in-law, Drexel. Morgan and company had a chunk. On September 24, 1869, the Treasury Secretary announced sales of federal gold that would deflate the price and inevitably destroy the fortunes of bankers all over Wall Street. Just the day before, Jerome had somehow figured out that it would be wise for him to cash in. Mysterious. Not very, but the next chapter is something of a mystery. Because rather than take his rightful place as a hero of Wall Street and accept the acclaim that would have followed, Jerome simply absconded with the money. His share was sizable, and given his talents and connections, he could have easily earned far more in just a few years than the relative trifle he chose to steal from his investors. Subsequent rumors pinned Jerome down in Latin America, giving him a mansion with bodyguards, government protection, and several beautiful courtesans. What does this have to do with what? Indeed, everything. It's said that Jerome has moved north from Latin America and that he's living as a fugitive on the American frontier with a sizable army of outlaws. 
Why? I can't tell you. But an even more puzzling development is that he's alleged to be allied with one Daryl Fawley. Have you heard of Daryl Fawley, Mr. O'Hugh? I haven't. He's married to a beautiful woman named Lucy Billings. Ring any bells? Who's Lucy Billings? No one. Not anymore. <laughs> Nothing more oddly pathetic than a gunman with a broken heart. Poor Mr. O'Hugh. We had a mole planted in a gang sympathetic to Jerome. The mole was recently discovered and killed, but not before wiring us of a planned prison break in Wyoming. We intend to plant you in that prison. The whole place will be leveled, the whole prison population freed to join Alan Jerome and your romantic rival, Daryl Fawley. We've designed a cover story for you, hero of the Wild West implicated in passion crime. It will hit the papers tomorrow, a warrant being issued by the U.S. Attorney in Wyoming as we speak. By tomorrow, if you're still on the street, every rag picker and his wife will be after you for the bounty. J.P. Morgan arranged all this? Look, Alan Jerome stole from him. He wants his money back. It's not about the money. You don't know the first thing about him, even though you work for him. He doesn't care about money. <laughs> That's the very first time I've ever heard that particular theory. <laughs> I think our Pierpont cares only about money. What else is there for him? Morgan personally shuts down a successful Hippodrome production, losing his 10% interest, with the recession a year old. Morgan calls in a favor with the government to frame an innocent man, all on a probably impossible quest to get back a small percentage of a cache of gold he and many other investors lost in the 60s? That's irrational. A man who behaves like that as a matter of habit with his finances cannot amass a fortune, and he certainly can't hold it in a bad economy. I learned better than that from running a whiskey house. This isn't about the gold. This is about love. Well, it's not my business then. What do you have to say to our proposition? Bearing in mind that you have no choice. Why? Listen to me. I heard Emelina calling my name. I turned to her, but her lips were almost still, quivering just slightly like a skilled ventriloquist throwing her voice. I'll get a room at the White Squall Inn. If you can get away, meet me there, and we'll escape together. Her voice was a vibration that seemed to come from deep within. Emelina's eyes said that she was talking to me, talking without speaking, and that I should just listen. If they get you, I'll be waiting for you in Wyoming after the prison break. I won't lose you, darling. Run for the hills. Keep yourself alive for me. Sneed stood and tossed off his jacket. He loosened his tie and his eyes shrank to tiny slits, his lips thin and bloodless. I took a quick jab at Sneed, who repelled my attack with a strong left arm. Seeing an opening, I cut from my left with all my force and struck him square in the jaw, but his skull barely trembled. I retreated, the joints in my fists throbbing. I spun about and kicked him hard on the right side of the head, but my boot just bounced uselessly away and, and I briefly lost my footing. I could feel Emelina's impatience, urging me to escape and so I fought to restrain my passion and my pride. I bolted from the room, careening through a house full of startled servants and drunken gamblers. 
A hat rack easily shattered the window pane in the front parlor. And I slithered through the opening, landing on my side of the soft, grassy front yard. On the street, a driver stood waiting in front of his coach and two beautiful black steeds stood steeping in the gaslight. He was a small man with an unsuccessful, wiry little mustache. I'm stealing a horse. I galloped across the cobblestones on Fifth Avenue. I had to make my way south and then east to Houston Street just off Mulberry. But I suspected that my trip would not be without complications. And I waited expectantly for the man that I believed would soon come in pursuit. I planned to speed south down Broadway, almost to the foot of the island, and then veer left when I saw the white squall's red and blue lanterns beckoning from a side street. My hat blew off in the wind and fluttered behind me up Fifth Avenue. I thought of Emelina, sitting on the edge of a bed in one of those seedy rooms, in that just better than crummy part of town. The inn was, I suppose, better than the cut-rate basement brothels behind City Hall, but a universe below the respectable, shuttered mansions on Fifth Avenue that lingered on, even then, anonymously. The squall. I pretended to wonder how she knew the place. Two mounted policemen turned onto Fifth Avenue from the south, and so I cut right across a side street made up of dark, imposing mansions shrouded in towering oaks. I held on desperately. My horse now seemed to enjoy himself. He was free again, a wild colt running through the mountain grass on strong young legs, while I was one step away from a prison sentence. We turned just shy of Ninth Avenue, galloped under the shadow of the L as the train clattered deafeningly up the track. Out of breath, I glanced quickly behind me to see half a dozen pursuers, uniformed policemen and determined-looking fellows in plain clothes, probably Morgan henchmen. Just now, ominously and from out of nowhere by a pack of panting dogs, all forging straight ahead through the ocean of pedestrians and carriages that meandered slowly about the train station. I kicked ruthlessly. My horse screamed. and lifting itself on its hind legs, seemed to explode into the night like a rocket. <laughs> I cut across another side street to Broadway, which this far north was dusty and undistinguished. I galloped past the marble works on my right, and on my left a small, shuttered building with a sign out front that said, New Washington Market. As I headed south, the avenue grew busier and more confused, but I galloped on, urging my horse faster and faster. I almost didn't notice the well-dressed streetwalkers heading toward the Fifth Avenue Hotel, who dodged and shrieked as I passed. This was not my home. Not anymore. It hated me. This starless city. I hit Union Square and all of Broadway in its famous glory, spread out before me like a rainbow. The grand buildings of marble, granite, red, and brown brick, cast iron and green limestone, the beauty and wealth on display in the blazing windows of the great stores, jewels, toys, paintings, gold, the brightly lit omnibuses and carriages, the glare of the lamp-lit hotels, the massive throngs, who dived for cover in the brilliant artificial light of night when the police whistles grew nearer. 
happily drunken crowd stumbling out of Wallace Theater, or the Imperial. Turreted showplace run by Mr. Booth, just a block to the east. From Bowery, I cut through to Chatham Street. Clamor more distant now, the dogs barking and screaming coppers a faraway din. I pass the dark and locked German and Jewish junk shops that line the street. I descended like Dante behind City Hall to the Five Points, the saddest neighborhood in New York, where I'd grown like a fungus on the underside of the log. Glance behind me. And from this vantage point, as the stench of my old home sank into my lungs, I could see the marble castles of the financial district, like a cruel fantasy hovering the airy clouds above the misery of the beggar city. Sidewalks crumbled away, my horse stumbled into the marshy mud that oozed up through the broken pavement. Garbage lined the narrow and crooked streets, rising from the gutters almost alive. I turned onto Baxter Street, passed by brothels and basement rum shops, decaying one-story shanties and tall, overcrowded brick tenements, babies screaming from the depths. As though I were racing through a medieval labyrinth, each turn blocked the view only a moment before. My horse stopped, and I almost flipped forward into the street. Up above, at the top of a small hill on the horizon, just barely visible through the soot and the fog, three men sat on horseback, in silhouette against the gray sky. I couldn't see their faces, but I knew who they were. They moved slowly toward me. Hoof beats a muffled clump on the swampy street. I pulled left on the rain, turning quickly, but I was greeted by the same sight on the opposite horizon. Three more men. Three more horses. Dogs marching silently beside them on the street. The cops drew silently closer, smug in the calm and quietly fearless way they approached. I could see curious eyes glowing in the darkness of the highest tenement windows. I kicked. The horse trotted off into a side alley that ended in a brick wall. I stood up, gave the horse a mental farewell, and I hopped onto the top of a one-story shanty, then onto a two-story shanty, then scurried up the side of a tenement building, climbing from window ledge to window ledge. As I reached the roof... I was covered with urban grime, a familiar but long-absent sensation. I began to run, leaping from rooftop to rooftop, now above Cherry Street, now flying over Gotham Court, a dark figure in the night sky. I could hear laughter and amazed cursing from upper tenement windows. I glanced back over my left shoulder and I could see a growing crowd and still more rising up from all sides. Cops and detectives and probably some thrill-seekers climbed onto the roofs to my left and to my right. From a three-story building, I scaled a five-story structure that abutted Pitt Street. I meant to turn and jump across a side alley to a smaller three-story tenement, but two fierce men climbed up onto the building from that direction 
their guns drawn. So instead, I took a running leap and pushed off the edge of the building, out over the narrow intersection, aiming for a building one story down. A crowd of kids on Pitt Street, far below me, stared into the sky with awe on their smudged little faces. I hit the edge of the roof, which crumbled under impact. My ankle snapped, and I slid down the wall. I grabbed hold of the eaves with my left hand. Gravel and stone cascaded down on me, and pain shot up my leg. Below me, Morgan's dogs leapt into the air, barking and snarling. I grasped a window molding and swung up onto the roof, my left ankle making another terrible, painful crunch beneath me. Hobbled to the other edge of the building, peered out over another alleyway. It was too far, and I knew that I could not make it. My ankle throbbed, and I clenched my teeth in pain. I turned around, my heels at the edge of the roof, and I put up my hands. I had surrendered. I'd mashed my ankle. I couldn't walk, and I certainly could no longer leap from building to building. I was unarmed and outmanned. I had no razor-sharp canine teeth. I had lost... I was ready to go quietly and to do whatever Pierpont Morgan required of me. To steal back his money, settle old grudges, or even get deeply involved in the dark forces I couldn't control or understand. I thought I had a right to be treated with the dignity owed a noble warrior. One cop moved a few steps forward and he wore on his face the condescending smirk of authority I recognized from my days as an unwashed waif. He pulled out a gun. Wait. You're not supposed to kill me. This is not a dead or alive thing. Ask Morgan. Ask John Pierpont Morgan. He wants me alive. <laughs> if you kill me, boys, then there's no reward. Did no one tell you? The gun dangled from the cop's fingers. Sweat dripped down his forehead and into his eyes, glowing on his skin like oily diamonds. He raised the gun, and then he fired. I felt the sharp pain in my side, and then, with another shot, a sharper pain near my heart. The night grew darker. My legs buckled beneath me. I fell. This has been the Chickadee Prince production of The Ghosts of Wadohue, starring Anthony Tether and Emily Dalton, produced by Danielle Wu, with music by Derek K. Miller, and featuring sound effects by Andoon, Stiffman, Wim, Keister, D. Hemming, Good Listener, and Audio Man, Play Audio One, Hallie Pinson, M. Altini, and Razvio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>